Listen, when you get saved, the Holy Spirit seals you. He is God's down payment, God's guarantee, God's earnest money, so to speak, that what he promised to do, he will complete. He is God's guarantee. And the opposite could be said of the unbeliever who does not have this seal and are not owned by the Lord. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're looking at the army of 144,000 addressed in Revelation 14 and previously mentioned in Revelation 7. We've seen so far that this army will be accompanying Jesus Christ at his second coming when he sets his feet on Mount Zion. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy as he begins reading from verse 1 of chapter 14 and give some additional insight about this army. When I looked and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000. Now, do you remember these people? It's been months since we're in chapter 7. It's taken us a long time to get here. So turn back to the left in your Bibles to chapter 7, would you? Revelation chapter 7. And let's just refresh our mind with who these 144,000 are. In Revelation 7 and verse 1, in this intervening chapter between the 6th and 7th seals, we read, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, We talked about that, that it does not mean the world is flat, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or any tree. Verse 2, and I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Now, this is the same group that are found here in the beginning of the tribulation that we're meeting today in chapter 14. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, we've seen already that one of the purposes of this seven-year period is to bring people to Jesus, people who have never heard the gospel in power and clarity will have an opportunity during this time, and it's going to happen through this army of evangelists, 144,000. Now, this is an abused verse. If you remember, Ellen G. White, the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, said that the 144,000 represent her denomination. Well, they ran into a problem because there came a point when the Seventh-day Adventists grew over 144,000. And so then they said, well, we never really meant it as a literal number, but if you read their literature carefully, that's exactly how she meant it. In either case, you dig a little bit deeper, and their point is is that the 144,000 today are symbolic of every Seventh-day Adventist because they worship on Saturday, and all the Sunday worshipers are basically taking the mark of the beast. So they spiritualize a lot of it. Now, even worse than they are a group known as the Jehovah's Witness. I hope you know Jehovah's Witness are not Christians. They deny the deity of Christ. They deny the absolute authority of the Bible. They trust only the New World Translation, written by a group of men who knew none of the original languages. They deny the doctrine of the Trinity. They deny salvation by grace alone. They are a cult just like the Mormons are. Now, they originally taught that only 144,000 people would ever be saved. Ooh, big problem. 
They too grew past 144,000. They didn't want to keep all these financial givers away, so they restructured their doctrine. And so they took a verse, much like the Mormons do, totally out of context, John 10, 16, where Jesus said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And so this slide illustrates how they handle the problem. They say there are two different saved groups of God's people. There's the anointed class, that's 144,000. Then there's the other sheep, and these two groups have two different destinies. The anointed class is made up of 144,000 Jehovah's Witness, and they enjoy a spiritual existence in heaven, and they rule with Christ, and, and that, that group was shut off in 1935. And so the other sheep refer to the rest of the Jehovah's Witness who will live forever in an earthly paradise, and they'll be ruled over by the 144,000 elite so-called believers of JWs and Jesus. Now, look, whatever you do with Revelation 7 or Revelation 14, you can't do that. You have to ignore the plain teaching of Scripture. We're told here in Revelation 7 and verse 4 that these men are from every tribe of the sons of God. And just so we wouldn't miss it, beginning in the next verse, for the next several verses, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed, from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000, from the tribe of Gad, 12,000, and he lists all 12 tribes. The list refers to literal, actual Jews who are the sons of Israel who are going to preach the gospel during this time after the church is removed. By the way, this totally also gets rid of another heresy where British Israelism taught there's 10 lost tribes in Israel. British Israelism was started by some rich white Anglo-Saxon people who didn't like Jewish people. So they created a doctrine and they said the Brits now represent as the new Israel and these 10 lost tribes, the people of God. Now we haven't seen a queen installed in a long time because the one we have, who I think is a believer, has been there a long time, but they have this rock and they say that was Jacob's rock and that was the rock he laid his head on. Now I don't like a rock for a pillow. I like that pillow soft. I don't know about you, Anthony, but they got this rock and there's coming a day when they're going to take that rock out again and they're going to put the crown on it and install the next queen or king or whatever it's going to be. Here's the point. There are no lost tribes. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sent the his disciples out to the lost tribes of the, to the lost sheep of the tribes of Israel. He knew where they were, and if they were lost, that's news to Jesus. Not to mention, he says that someday the apostles will judge the 12 tribes of Israel, 10 are not lost. And if you've read the book of James, they weren't lost in his mind in the first century when he penned that book, because in the opening verse, he writes to the 12 tribes. Paul, before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, speaks of the 12 tribes. Anna, on the presentation of Christ in the temple, remember, she is from the tribe of Asher, which is one of these 10 tribes. So if they're lost, they're not lost to God because God does not lose things. Now, these 144,000 Jewish men are going to play a critical role because what are they going to accomplish? Look at verses 9 and 10. And, the, and after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, 
from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I don't know how these 144,000 are going to be saved. God doesn't show us that. Maybe they'll have a Damascus Road kind of experience. Maybe they'll just be good Orthodox Jews that represent about 35% of the population today in Israel who have been studying the Scriptures, and God will lift the blinders, and they'll realize that Yeshua is Lord. All these evangelicals who've tried to witness to them, they're going to see it's true what they said. I don't know how God is going to do it, but there's going to be 144,000 of them, and God's going to let them preach the gospel, and they are going to fulfill the Great Commission. Remember what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse. He said, this gospel of the kingdom shall go out to the whole world, and then the end shall come. When is that prophecy going to be fulfilled? Well, in the context of Matthew 24, in this final seven-year period. And that's what this text is reminding us. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, look, we just, by God's grace, put some Old Testament books in the hands of the Bakuna. The New Testament, through your generosity, is being translated. But don't think for a skinny moment that if we get this people group and that people group, which we should, and get a translation in their Bible, uh, the translation of the Bible in their language, that that's going to usher in the second coming. No, 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 no. This prophecy will be fulfilled during this final time frame in human history. And why is God going to fulfill it? Because He loves the lost. It is a trustworthy statement. It deserves your full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Listen, why does Community Bible Church exist? What does God have for us Number one, we exist to edify the Savior, to exalt the Savior. We are to glorify Jesus. Number two, we exist to edify the saints so that you can grow, not on my opinion, but what the Word of God says, because that's the living Word that will change your life. That's why you need a Bible in this church. And number three, we exist to evangelize the lost. We're here to exalt the Savior, to edify the saints, and to evangelize the lost. Can you say amen to that? That's what we are about. That's what we are to be about. Why? Because God cares, among other things, for lost people. And the Lord is not slow about His promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's the heartbeat of what is being said. After these things, I looked and I saw a great multitude. Now, the truth revealed in verse 9 is that after Christ comes for His church, there is going to be a great multitude of people who are pictured here in heaven. Why are they in heaven already? Well, if you remember back in the sealed judgments, and he's taking us back, and he's reviewing what has been happening, all of these people who are coming to know Jesus during the tribulation are being martyred. They're either being starved to death because they can't buy or sell anything, or they get their heads cut off during this seven-year period. And they're in heaven. They're rejoicing in the great salvation in which they have. And they're referred to in the Bible as saints. 
These are not church saints. Remember, there are three categories of saints, of set-apart ones in the Bible. There are Old Testament saints. And so the psalmist says, fear the Lord, you his saints. In Acts 9, there are church saints. And Ananias says to the Lord, you know, Lord, he's the one, Saul of Tarsus, who wants to harm your saints. And then there are these tribulation saints. And Revelation 13 and verse 7 speaks of the Antichrist who wants to make war with the saints of God. But these are set-apart people. They have been declared righteous on the basis of grace. Now, people sometimes ask me, well, now, wait a minute, Pastor. How is it that people can even get saved during the time of the Great Tribulation if the Holy Spirit is taken out of the world? Well, the answer is, is that He is removed from the world in the same sense in which He came on Pentecost. He's removed from the world in the sense that the church is gone. We who are the temple of the living God. But that does not mean he stops working in the hearts of lost people. Just as he worked before Christ came, he will work during this period of time as well, convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now think about it. Here's this great multitude from every tribe, people, and tongue. How is that going to happen? I don't know. Maybe they'll preach and they'll be able to speak every language and tongue around the world. But all I know is every tribe, tongue, and nation are going to be able to understand and believe the gospel. And there'll be representatives from every group, a great multitude that no one could count. Now think about that. On Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved. A few short days later, 5,000 men excluding women and children. And then the Scripture says God was adding daily to the number, day by day. But on this time, millions upon millions of people, John Wesley, the great Anglican pastor who came to our country, rode up and down the coast on a horse preaching the gospel, first came here, of course, discovered he was lost trying to convert the Indians in Savannah. And on the boat trip back, realized he himself wasn't saved. But he came back and preached the gospel tirelessly. And he had a certain method to follow up new Christians just like we do. The discovery class, a 45-week course. It will ground you in your faith and solidify you so that you can walk with the Lord. And so many of his followers, because they were so methodical, it was almost a slur word, they were called Methodists. Well, Wesley used to say, give me a hundred men who love nothing but God and hate nothing but sin, and I will shake the whole world for Christ. Well, listen, it's not 12 here. It's not Wesley's 100. It's 144,000 people who are going to preach the gospel. And notice what God says. They are divinely protected. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until they have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Now, this seal is a mark of ownership, and this seal, in this case, is a mark of protection. And when they are sealed, no one can hurt them. Why does God not want them hurt? There's a lot of people martyred during this time, His people, because He wants one untiring, consistent voice preaching the gospel over and over. You take a gun, you shoot the fellow who's sealed, one of the hundred, you can't kill him. It's like Superman. The, the bullets just bounce off. I, I don't know if the gun jams or what God does, but you cannot kill these people. You say, I wish I had a seal like that. Well, in one sense you do. It's a little different. But we are sealed also. We are marked and owned by God. 
It's called the seal of the Spirit. In Ephesians 1, in Him, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, which is the gospel of your salvation, the death, burial, and the resurrection, that's the gospel. Having believed, you got to hear it before you can believe it. You are sealed in Him, in Jesus. How? With the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge. Some of your translations say a deposit. Another one says a first installment. The King James says as an earnest of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Listen, when you get saved, the Holy Spirit seals you. He is God's down payment, God's guarantee, God's earnest money, so to speak, that what He promised to do, He will complete. He is God's guarantee. And the opposite could be said of the unbeliever who does not have this seal and are not owned by the Lord. Paul says in Romans 8, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he does not belong to him. And so the same God and Father who sealed us and marks us as his children, seals and marks these 144,000. But they are protected in a unique way. Again in verse 1, I looked and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, And with him, 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Now, by the way, God protecting his own is not without precedent. Before the time of the great flood, God brought Noah and his family into the ark of safety before he flooded the world. Uh, When God came and uh, rained fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah, he delivered Lot and his two daughters. When Jericho was conquered by Joshua, Rahab, the prostitute, because of her faith, was delivered. And in the same way, during the tribulation, these 144,000 will be delivered. And in some ways, you and I, if we've been saved, will be delivered even in a greater way. And that we won't be here for this time. God will take His church out. So this army is divinely protected. Notice also, they are divinely preserved. They're divinely preserved. Then I looked, and the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion with him, 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. Now remember, the Lord God, Jesus, is on God's holy mountain. He's on top of Mount Zion. He has 144,000 men who have an outward visible sign. We're told they have his name, meaning the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, and they have the name of his Father, written on their foreheads. These men are called out. They are separated. Not only are they owned by God, they are sovereignly protected by God. Notice the number. This is, towards the, this is the end of the tribulation. The tribulation is over. He's given us a preview of the second coming. Jesus has come back. He's on top of the Temple Mount. At the beginning of the tribulation, God called out the 144,000. Now we're at the end of it. And there's not 143,000. There's not 143,999. There's 144,000 protected preachers because God has protected them. Okay, that's God's rescued army. Secondly, let's think for a moment about God's rejoicing army. God's rejoicing army. Notice first that God's army rejoices in a new setting, in a new setting. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. 
Now, as we witness in chapters 4 and 5 of the Revelation, among other things, heaven is filled with the praises and the worship of God's people. And so the voice they hear from heaven is described like the sound of many waters, like an unbroken unity. My wife and I, with our grandchildren while on vacation, we, we stood behind a waterfall, and there was this powerful waterfall, and you could stand right behind it and almost see through it, and it was just unbroken noise that came down. That's the picture here, like the sound of many waters, like one large unified voice. Also, it's described like the sound of thunder. That means it's not dead, it's full, it's full of volume. And notice also this voice is described like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. So it's not just loud, it's sweet, it's pleasant, it's soothing. And this is a picture, remember, they're on the earth and they're hearing this music from heaven. Who's there? We are, the church who's been raptured. We're one body, we're one people, though many members, and there's one unified verse, one voice, one voice. Look at verse 3. They're referred to as they. You might want to circle the word voice in verse 2, the word voice in verse 2, and then draw an arrow to the pronoun they in verse 3. Now, these 144,000, it's the end of the tribulation. They've been rescued from that time period. They've witnessed for seven years death and destruction on an unprecedented level. They've watched the world turn its back on God's Messiah and worship this false God. They've watched the world fall at the feet of the Antichrist and take his false seal. And they've viewed horrible judgments that have come out of heaven. But this verse finds them with the Lord Jesus on top of Mount Zion, and they are listening with their feet firmly planted on earth's foundation there on the top of the Temple Mount. They are listening to God's people sing in heaven. By the way, there's 144,000 of them with Jesus on that mount. At Ramadan, they had over 500,000 Muslims on top of that 40, 35-acre piece of property. So here they are. They're, they're listening to these voices from heaven, and it's magnificent. Now, remember, when sin entered into the world, our nature within fell and our bodies without fell. And so our voices are fallen voices, and some are more fallen than others, right, man? man that's, that's his job as a, as a choir director. He has to see who has the most fallen voice. Some of them have scratchy, tone-deaf, flat voices. But listen, it doesn't say your music has to be good, but you should sing it. You should belt it out. Belt it out for me when you sing. It'll make me that much happier when I go to heaven, okay? Listen, here are these people who've been through all of this pain and sorrow and tears, watching a fallen world come under the judgment of God, thanking and praising the Lord for those who are saved. But now they are having a choir practice of sorts. They are on the earth, and they're listening to this magnificent choir who's in heaven. So they rejoice in a new setting, but secondly, they rejoice with a new song. God's army rejoices with a new song. Now notice verse 3. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. 
He only identifies the choir here with the pronoun they, but the rest of the revelation, if you remember chapters 4 and 5, it's the redeemed church in heaven and this special class of angels called the four living creatures who are praising angels. And so while the heavenly choir sings this new song, 144,000 men there on the temple mount with Jesus on Mount Zion are learning a new song. And the text says that no one could learn the song except these 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. In other words, they were not earth dwellers like we've seen all the way through Revelation. These people who are this life only, who could care less about God. These are citizens of heaven. These are the redeemed people of God. And if only this army of evangelists can hear this song, there's an implication here that there are some present who cannot hear this song. Now remember, the Lord is on Mount Zion with these people. Here's the Mount of Olives that he comes back on. He splits it in two. It opens up the eastern gate. He walks up on the Temple Mount. He's got 144,000 evangelists who've been preaching the gospel with him for seven years. This Kidron Valley that lies between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount is also called the Valley of Jehoshaphat or the Valley of Decision. It's the same place. Now, if you go there today, here's a picture of it. Uh, between, uh, if you're on top of the Mount of Olives, and Mount Zion is where that gold dome is, that Muslim pagan structure of sorts, between the two is one of the largest graveyards in the world. And there are all these Jewish men and women who want to be buried there. Now, some time ago, my wife and I were with our grandchildren there in Atlanta, and we took them to visit their our granddaughter's grave, Jane, and, and as we sat there on the ground, one of them said, now, granddaddy, where's Jane's head? Is it here where my feet is, or is it up here by the stone? I said, it's by the headstone. They wanted to know where her head was. I said, that's why we call it a headstone. So she's buried with her head there. Well, if you're on the Mount of Olives, and you look at this mass of graves, and if somehow you could take the lid off, now this is just a grave marker, they're buried six feet under, the head, if they sat up, would be facing that temple mount. Every Jew on that mountain is buried in such a way that if he were to sit up on that grave, he'd be looking straight at the temple mount. Why is that? Because they believe the prophecies of Scripture. They believe that that's where the Messiah is going to come because that's what God reveals in His Word. And they want to see the Messiah there standing on Mount Zion. Now remember, this is the Valley of Jehoshaphat called the Valley of Decision. Jehoshaphat means Yahweh judges. Listen to what God says in Joel 3. He says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel. So remember, unless these days had been cut short, this, these days of horrible tribulation, Jesus said no one would survive. So God puts an end to it. And there are people who are alive when Jesus comes, some who are living, born-again believers, tribulation saints, and other unbelievers. And God gathers them all, and He brings them into the valley of Jehoshaphat, into what today we also call the Kidron Valley. 
And God says in Matthew 25 that he will judge them. He'll judge the nations on the basis of the way they treated Jerusalem. He said, I was in prison, you fed me. I was hungry, you, 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 know, you cared for me, and so forth. I was naked, you clothed me. Whatever you did to the least of these, my brethren, referring to the Jewish people. Now, we apply it broadly today, but remember the context. He's talking about how the nations of the world are going to treat Israel. And all the nations of the world are going to come against Israel on that day. The only nations that won't are those who have come to believe that Jesus is the Savior. The tribulation will be a time more horrific than we can even imagine. And yet, during this time, some will come to faith in Jesus, and God will gather them and deliver them from judgment, while unbelievers will be gathered and judged in what we now call the Kidron Valley. Tomorrow, we'll bring all of this together as we conclude the message, God's Army with the Lamb. To listen again to today's study, use the Search the Scriptures app or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. And if you can help support this Bible teaching ministry, click the Give button at our website or on our app or call 877-787-7478. Tomorrow, the conclusion of God's Army with the Lamb. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.